This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we have great stories for you, including paddling across the ocean. Our friend, Shift Head, and family member here, uh, his name is Cyril Deramo. He paddled from San Francisco to Hawaii in a kayak. Paddled. Now he's got a new journey he wants to take on across the Atlantic. And we also ask him if the recent events with the missing submarine and everything that happened there impact his decision making and maybe cause a little caution for paddling across the ocean. Flashback Friday, so we rewind to 2001 with a dose of nostalgia. We look at movies, news, and most importantly, the music of 2001. And are you okay with cage matches, confessions, and more on the Shift Daily Podcast? This is the Shift Podcast. It was last year, toward the end of the summer, I, I guess, when we spoke with Ciro. Cyril Demero, or Deramo is, um, was, uh, I don't know what's going on in his head. He, this is a bright idea. He was going to paddle from San Francisco to Hawaii. His kayak. It's, it's like a, it's a kayak camper, but it's, it's he's paddling <laughs> and he, and, and he did it because obviously he was on the show. So that went well. Now Cyril is back with us again and Cyril has a new idea. I would suggest, Cyril, that maybe your new idea is to sit down with a counselor and talk about these crazy notions you have, but <laughs> you do have a new idea. How are you? Welcome back. So happy to be here, Shane. I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, before we get into the new projects and what you're up to, I mean, what is it, nine or 10 months ago you finished? Yeah, it was 10 months ago, September wow. last year, 2022. It's going so, so fast. fast. It just feels like yesterday. Now, you a couple of things have happened since then, uh, just from our communication and social media. You did return to Hawaii via airplane, <laughs> which must have been really <laughs> yes. nice. Um, and you also uh, spent a little time there, and then you've had a little bit of time to reflect too. So before we get into the future stuff, can you tell me what that reconcile of the of what you accomplished by manually paddling from San Francisco to Hawaii, how does that sit with you? Well, it was a spiritual adventure, more than just a physical or being alone at sea and crossing the ocean. I think I really learned a lot about myself, about my values of what I love in life. And, and there's something very well known after an expedition like this. It's a post-expedition distress syndrome. It's, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, when women have a baby and they could go have like a get yeah, the blues. Yeah, postpartum, or, yep. Like, a, you know, exactly. So you have a post-expedition mm. where... It's kind of hard to readapt, or it's not hard to readapt. But life in on the ocean was so easy. Uh, it's a day to day. You have your things to do. You're so connected with the ocean, and you come back in a very busy life. And uh, and everybody you talk to and explain your adventure, you feel like they don't really get it. Like you can explain it as much as you want, and the people want to be empathetic, understand, and feel. You know, they won't get it. You know, it's it. It, it, I think it's similar with the military people that come back from a mission. You can't really explain yeah. what happened in words, right? So there's this period of time where you just have to be patient with yourself. And and I knew one of the options is to go back to another adventure. Say, I am have another goal right away, like rebounce. And, and because I knew about this syndrome, I said, I'm not going to decide anything for three months. I'm just going to take it in. And came back home, you know, and, and, and I went back to Hawaii. I started to be a motivational mm -hmm. speaker. So I 
I shared my story with companies, with, with people, with group, with paddlers, non-paddlers, and I'm having a blast with this. And um, I gave myself a few months to, to, to decide what I wanted to do. Hmm. I, ever, I would assume that everybody perceives your journey paddling across the Pacific as being terrifying always. I think I've learned from you that there's an element of rhythm to it and a piece to it. And uh, you get to know yourself, including the ugly. And, but there is a real rhythm and peace and quiet to that. I did last year, uh, right when you were paddling, I, I did a, a, a seven day existential study where you handed in your phone, no stimulation, no music, nothing. And so I feel like on a small scale, I can connect with that reintegrating back into the busy because when you're paddling, I would imagine, contrary to the belief that you're terrified all the time, there, the, the, the rhythm of the paddling, the rhythm of the days that comes with that probably feels pretty natural. And then you get back into life and you're parked in traffic at a stoplight and people are yelling and honking and you're going, whoa, what is this life? And once you see that mm -hmm. other side of it, it really is difficult to reintegrate and say, why am I doing this? Is that what yeah. it was like? Yeah, it's true. Um, well, the crossing took 91 days, right? That's three months. And you can't be stressed for three months. You just wouldn't be able to do it. So I think the whole crossing is about adaptation. And it's a daily thing where there's a new situation. How do I adapt to it? How do I change? How do I... I reframe my mind, right? And and then you get used to, after two weeks, you get used to situations that were scary before and really just are normal now because it's a new normal. Uh, and and you get into a pace where your body adapts to the 12 hours of paddling, of not sleeping well, so sleep deprivation, of being seasick or not eating properly or not taking showers. Like you're, you get into a completely different groove. And when you go back to land, uh, it's, it's a bittersweet moment because you're so happy to see everybody you have missed. But then that means your adventure is over. And then the readaptation takes a little bit of time because on one side, it's always positive, right? You take a shower, you say, this is a miracle. Like it's water that comes out of the faucet that is hot. <laughs> or you, you sleep into your, your bed with dry pillow and dry sheets. That's fantastic. Or you give a hug to a kid or you listen to a bird. That's mm -hmm. fantastic. But at the same time comes the other side where we're there's like the press asking for talks and, and interviews. And then you go back, there's a calendar, you've got four or five different email address that are bopping. And then um, you have phone calls and email, social media, like the busyness uh, of the normal life comes back. And it's like, wow, uh, I didn't need it. Like, uh, but you just have to adapt again, you know? And, and I think after a few months, you kind of feel the call of the ocean again and i think it's something that a lot of sailors have felt before like the, the ocean is calling me there's a simplicity of of just being outside all the time where you feel the wind you feel you look at the weather you look at the waves the pattern you read the water you see the wildlife that is that is calling mm. you again so um little by little i started to think well you know <laughs> i've done one crossing i know my boat I know the ins and outs. I know what it takes. And I think I'd like to do it wow. again. I have a guy that I need you to meet, by the way. I think that you guys would have an awful lot to talk about. We had a gentleman here on the show. And he is, I think he was a bioengineer by trade. He is an ex-military guy. 
And he went and lived underwater. His name's Dr. Joseph Deturi. Uh, down in Florida, he lived underwater for 100 days. And it wasn't about wow. isolation because there was people that came in and out to assess and help and everything else, although he was mostly isolated. It was about the pressure and that was his study. But he speaks about mm-hmm. it very similarly to you in that he went into that as a scientist and came out a philosopher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I just received a message from yeah. him on LinkedIn actually where he, um, he was like, we got, I'd, let me get through these next couple of weeks of his work like you're talking about, all the talks. And we've got lots to talk about, he says. And so this really is a... Um, it really it becomes this experiential moment of where you get to when you say the sea is sort of calling you. I, I know that for me, I mean, I was only a week and that's like a drop in the proverbial bucket of what you guys have spent, you know, alone. And I'm, I'm way more comfortable being alone. I'm way more comfortable with the rhythm of life. I'm way more comfortable with it. I like the slow moving now. I, I like those things. It, what an interesting human yes. journey it becomes to find that, you know what, I'm perfectly okay doing the basics. Uh, I, you know what I, this is the, so stupid. I feel silly even saying it, but I'll just acknowledge that because it's a thing. I started to really enjoy folding towels. I found new ways to fold towels because I could stop. I could be present. I can lay them out. I now, I don't fold them. Actually, I roll them now like a spa when you go to a spa. I love it. But that's one of those yeah. things that, that started with me after I got to know that bit. Is there anything that in your day-to-day life that you've found that is different. You just do it differently now. You appreciate uh, the piece of it, the solitude of it, the tempo of it. Is there anything at home or in your day-to-day life that, that you've found? Mm. Uh, yeah, I think for me, it's about being with people. I when Whenever you meet someone, you always have something to do or you're somewhere you have to go. And, and you kind of miss the opportunity of the connection. So because I have, didn't see anybody for three months, now when I see someone, I try to yeah, enjoy the moment and, and actually be there when I talk to them. Um, but what you're talking about is uh, it's the flow. You, know, you, you could do that when you're cooking, when you're gardening, or just being in the moment. It just feels just great. Feel great. You know? Just like when you're walking, walk. Yeah. When, when you're sitting down, sit. Yeah, <laughs> that, it, and well, there's... It, Overly simplistic. It's one of those. It's uh, it's simple, but it ain't easy at times to sit when you for sit, sure. right? For sure. Um, Cyril Deramo is here. Cyril paddled from San Francisco to Hawaii, uh, ninety days plus paddling away. Now you had some breakdowns. You had your um, desalinator broke and all these things. And this is where I question: Are you okay? Because now you've mm-hmm. decided to do it again, except you've chosen the uglier of the oceans. Uh, and, and, um, and you're going to paddle with the same boat lessons learned, I suppose, and excited to go the other direction. Yeah. Um, my first crossing was really all about the adventure and, and I turned, it turned into a spiritual journey. The second one, I've got to say, it's a, maybe a little bit of the ego. I got to say, because I've got a shot of doing yeah. something that nobody has ever so done great. before. Uh, I want to cross the Atlantic ocean. So there's various ways to do it. You could do it from west to east, from Canada to Europe, or you could do it east to west. And the, the west to east is, is a little bit harder because you're further north and it's really cold water, it's uh, uh, stormy waters and a lot of, you know, a lot of cold, cold temperatures. So 
Um, I'll keep it for after, but I think I want to do first the east to west. So I'll start at the Canary Islands, mm -hmm. and I want to go west westbound towards Barbados. And it's a little bit longer than the Pacific mid Pacific that I've done, um, but uh, I think I can do it. If I'm a little bit faster, I should be able to do under 100 days faster. I love it. like you're paddling, Cyril. You're paddling the boat. Mm -hmm. I love how you talk about it. Just so casually like i'll just go faster it'll be that that's better um there's been in the news and actually as we speak the news came out today of uh the uh catastrophic failure of that submarine at the titanic um yeah. the stories like that must sit with you although you're not going thirteen thousand feet underwater by any means but it is um maybe this is the bad um metaphor for it but it is particularly grounding when you see, I mean, the outcomes of this, it's not, it's not all pretty, Cyril. No, and, but you know what I'll say is that people like them and they, they live for the passion. They, they live to, to do what they love, you know. So um, having them, you know, die in such a way, it's, it's horrific. It's, it's, it's difficult, obviously, but you can't, you can't deny that people that live to the maximum, it's beautiful in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it, it must be, obviously it's hard for it, for their family, their friends and, and, and for themselves and kids, etc. But, um, I think we're lucky to be able to do this. We're lucky. And we know that it's possible to happen. Um, but here's the thing. I'm, I'm really interested in, in the action that we do to reach a goal, but we end up reaching exactly the opposite. Let me explain. So let's say you love life, right? So you don't want to die. And we know why we can die, right? You love life. So you're going to be living carefully so not to die. So you're going to be super careful. You're not going to take the plane because you're afraid that the plane could mm -hmm. crash. You're not going to you know, do certain things because you think they're too dangerous. So you end up not living because you love life. So you're doing yeah. the opposite. You're, you're actually... Um, like what we do, I love life so much that I embrace the risk of feeling mm -hmm. alive. Like I accept the, the the antithesis of life just because I want to live to the maximum. And these people, they've done that. They have a passion for the Titanic. They have passion for the ocean. They have passion for new technology. And they've lived life, life mm -hmm. to that, right? And in the way, it's beautiful. Like, like who, who's going to decide what we live for? Like you could say, well, the military, he decides to live for his country and for the values that his country, and it's okay that, like, it's beautiful that he would be uh, agreeing to sacrifice his life for his beliefs. Well, in, in a different way, us adventurers, that's what we do. And when you're a dad and you, you do all your life for your family and for the education of your kids, that's what you do too. You decide your values and you live by them and it's beautiful. I, I love that. I think you nail it. Uh, a couple of pieces that I try to live into, uh, philosophically anyway, I, I certainly am not as courageous as you are yet in the living into life is there's a distinction between living and alive. And there's a distinction between um, alive and not dead. And, and I translate that very easily into most of us can understand the distinction between I am happy I am sad. I am not happy, but I'm also not sad. And mm -hmm. that's important to look at. I love that you've discovered that and share that. I mean, 
I would love to say that, hey, what do you think you're going to find on this trip? Um, but that's just one of the magical pieces of, of paddling across the Atlantic, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'll be, I'll be living in the moment. I, I know that I, my threshold is, is 90 days, so I know I've, uh, I've got all the tools to face what, what I'll, I'll see and like the hardship. Um, but it's going to be different. The ocean is going to always be mm-hmm. different. You could take the, the same journey a hundred times. You'll learn a hundred things different. And then I'll, I'll be a little bit older. I'll be maybe, uh, uh, you know, in different state of mind. Um, who knows? But mm. <laughs> that's what I want to do. I don't know what I want to learn, but it's pretty sure that it's going to change my mind. And that's how, you know, I explained it on the first crossing. My friend Steve in Canada, in Canada, he's from Calgary. He said, Cyril, those 90 days. Um they were hard. They were super tough. It's three months. It's, it feels like forever. But look at your scale of your life. You're 46 years old. Three months nothing. is nothing. And and these three months are going to change the way you see life for the next 45 years. So those three months are an amazing investment. And that's why you need to do it. And and in some ways, you know, I love them so much. I think I, I just want to do it again, you know, if I can. Uh there's going to be barriers, obviously. Now I have to uh, ship the boat to Canary Islands. There's a cost. I bring it back from Barbados. I have to refurbish the boat to make it even more seaworthy and faster, like mm-hmm. I said earlier. I have a few things that I can uh, change. Desalinator, um, top of the list, eh? Please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Before all the other things, hey, how about we fix that? I've repaired okay, it good. already. Yeah, it's, it's How about it's a second one? Do you feel good with taking a second one with you, just in case? <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, I'm looking out for you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what I've noticed is is actually, it was kind of fun. Everything that I, I had a plan B or plan C for, uh, there was not really a source of stress. It, like the desal broke. Okay, I've got a plan B. I've got a second one. And if the plan B breaks, you know, I've got a plan C. That was not a source of stress, even though it could have been stressful. I think the, the hardest were the things that were unexpected and um, that I didn't prepare mentally, preemptively for it. And I think it's the same in life. If you imagine, okay, this could happen, this could happen. Okay, when it happens, you can deal with it. It's the things that you cannot predict. And that's when you have to show the most flexibility to adapt. Um, so another little lesson for life here. <laughs> another little lesson for life. This is absolutely fascinating. I love what you're up to. I have a contact in uh, Barbados that I will happily introduce you to. He's been a friend here on the shift. He was a former ambassador uh, for Barbados to England. Um, and we, we actually brought him on. His name is Guy Hewitt. So we share the same last name, although, uh, maybe in lineage, the family, but he's in, he's Barbadian and, um, and he's, uh, he works in faith now. He's a, he's a reverend now. And so a father priest. Yeah. And so he, um, he's a great guy and, uh, maybe you could, maybe I'll hook you up with a Hewitt to greet you when you arrive. I would love it. <laughs> yes. And then. He'll bring me the best rum. Oh, of absolutely. I would love absolutely. That. <laughs> he will. I can tell you that much. That much I also do know, um, <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, paddling across the Atlantic. Do you know when? Imagine seasons matter in this, right? Uh, yes, it's uh, end end of the year. So it would probably be December 2024. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the dead. So I have a year and a half to mm-hmm. get ready. Um, start training again. It's been 10 months since my last crossing and I feel strong again physically. I, I've recuperated everything, so that's great. Um, some logistics to do, to ship the boat over there, but it's it's nothing that I can't can't find. Um, 
Yeah, December, it's the best time. Uh, one thing that is good is starting from an island, from the island, the Canary Islands, to an island makes it that the trade winds are already established. Mm. Uh, when I left from California, it's a little bit harder because you gotta got to get off the coast of the mainland. And that took me three weeks, four weeks to get into the trade winds. Here from Canary Islands, the trade winds are pretty much going to be on, on my back from the get-go. Right, so that means that's why it's 200 nautical miles longer than what I've done, but it should take me about the same amount of time. So you got to look at the positive. Yeah, wow, <laughs> uh, you're a bit of a magician. I feel anxious just thinking about you going to do this. So uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I would like you to uh, keep in touch with us through the process as you get ready for this. We'd like to share the story, and um, and then I it. look forward to following it when you go and you do it. And uh, I think that would be, um, I think that's really great. I mean, I think you're crazy, but I think it's, <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. There's, I, I want to acknowledge, you know, you were a peaceful person when we met first. And um, there, is a, there is a calm about you right now. And it's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. There's, uh, it's a different thing going on. I could feel it. I can see it in your eyes. And, and, uh, and good for you, man. Well done. I like it. Thank you, Shane. I appreciate it so much. All right. Thank so you. Cyril Deramo is going to paddle from Canary Islands to Barbados. He already did from San Francisco to Hawaii. And, uh, and we look forward to following along. Merci. Bonne chance. Merci beaucoup. Bonne soirée. Au revoir. This is The Shift Podcast. Flashback Friday here on The Shift, the Titanic 2001. Now, that seems like a strange year because that's not when the Titanic happened. Of course, it's not when the movie came out either. That was the year that James Cameron and a huge crew dove down to the Titanic and captured stunning images of the wreck. During August and September 2001, Cameron and a group of scientists staged an expedition to the wreck of the RMS Titanic, dived into Russian deep submersibles to obtain more detailed images than anyone had ever seen of the Titanic before. Using two small purpose-built remotely operated vehicles nicknamed Jake and Elwood, they mapped the ship like nobody had ever seen it. But as the crew came to the surface, this is the timing, they learned that 9-11 had happened. That's when they were doing it away from everybody, out of contact. Afterward, they all compare and reflect on the tragedy of 9-11 with the tragedy of the Titanic happening. The emotional parallels came first. You know, we now understood what it felt like to be a witness to tragedy. The sense of shock and numbness and the disbelief that the unthinkable has happened. It does happen. Occasionally, life sits on your head. Hey, I've been knocked out before. We all have. We get up. We get on. I think that's what makes us great. Everyone decided to continue the expedition. I think that after we'd gotten over the initial shock, Titanic did seem to become important again. Not so much for itself, but as a symbol of what can happen when warnings go unheeded. And how I think we all hope to face death when it comes. 
So what a strange connection that happened there is that they're underwater doing all of this work, getting these photos with, I don't know, what is it, 1,500 people on the Titanic? It was a lot. And then they come to the surface and find out that in uh, the U.S., almost 3,000 people had died. Things got very real very quickly. James Cameron made a documentary about the voyage and called it Ghosts of the Abyss. That was in 2001, 22 years ago, when they went and mapped it out with the photos. And then they, um, and then you go fast forward to today when the news comes out of the commercialized adventure travel to the Titanic has gone, um, dramatically wrong. Yeah, just a quick thing. The 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 that was filmed in two thousand and one. The movie itself actually came out in two thousand and three. Two years later, it was nominated for a bunch of stuff. I was actually going to try to watch it today, but it's only available for rent, not on Disney Plus. But I feel like that might change because there's all this new sort of mm. interest in the Titanic and and what's down there. Yeah, well, well they just uh, they make their five bucks. <laughs> yeah, go for it, right? Um, all right, flashback Friday here on the shift. Something a little bit lighter. A very famous Canadian did something truly amazing in 2001. Again, it's hard to believe 22 years ago we're talking about spacewalks. Astronaut and all-around cool guy and guitar player Chris Hadfield became the first Canadian to spacewalk, and it was not easy. I, I was uh, on my first spacewalk. I was out with a guy named Scott Perizinski, who's who's climbed Everest and, and uh, amazing guy, medical doctor, commercial airline pilot, brilliant fellow. Um, he and I were out on a spacewalk together and I was working away and, and suddenly my left eye just seared with pain and stopped working, like slammed itself shut. And you can't rub it on anything. You can't reach it because it's in a helmet. So I just kind of like, eh, you know, just tough it out. What am I going to do? I got something in my eye. I can't get it out of my eye. What do you, you, know, you could call down to Houston, but what are they going to do? You know, they're just going to say, so can you live with it? So I just stayed quiet about it, live with it. But your eye tears up so badly trying to fight whatever the contamination is. And the tears don't drain because there's no gravity. So you just have this big, bigger and bigger ball of contaminated whatever it was until eventually the ball gets so big that it goes across the bridge of your nose and contaminates your other eye just from the surface tension of the tear flowing across. So then I was truly blinded. Couldn't see out of either eye. Okay, that's terrifying. Um you're in space, first of all. That's strange. Then you're in a suit. I would be having nightmares about floating away into nothingness. And then you're in the suit outside the ship, worried about floating away, and then you can't see now. <laughs> well, if you're blind in space, what do you do? Well, you panic and you scream for help for normal people. Chris Hadfield, though, remains calm, and he just did what he had to do. So when I was actually blinded, it wasn't so bad because like I can still talk and hear and Scott and I are discussing and I'm still holding on. I just can't see. And it's not going to be that hard to get me back into the airlock if that's the only thing we can think of. But we popped open the vent on the side of my helmet and we let my oxygen squirt out into the universe, fed by the tank on my back so that um, it would hopefully dilute and, and clear my eyes as quick as possible. And from the time I first started having problems until I was back to work was about a half hour. Uh, but by the end of it, my eyes were stinging and I couldn't see great, but I could see well enough. Whatever it was had, uh, had diluted and evaporated off my eyes. I stopped squirting my oxygen out to the universe, which was a nice valve to close. 
and then got back to work. And if anything, it just made the first spacewalk more interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not it. That's not what happened. Terrifying nightmare, worst <laughs> experience ever for any normal person. Um, that's remarkable. All right, so that was from the interview Chris Hadfield did with the London Reel. When the Expedition 34 ended in March 2013, Hadfield became the commander of the ISS as part of the Expedition 35, responsible for a crew of five astronauts and helping to run dozens of scientific experiments dealing with the impact of low gravity, human biology, and more. During this mission, he chronicled life aboard the space station by taking pictures of Earth, posting them on various social media platforms, and playing music as well, which was... Uh, which is cool. He's one of the um, one of the guys I'd love to meet him. I think that would be amazing. Yeah, he's he's just kind of a generational inspiration to kids, to adults. He's just mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, and cool with a whole new respect for that. I mean, I can't imagine being in space, let alone going like, oh. Psh, little air. Yep, I can see. We're good. We got this. That's wild. Okay, Flashback Friday 2001 is the year. If you follow the musical Breadcrumb, my question for you, 877-399-9898. Where were you located in 2001, and what was your age in 2001? The number again, 877-399-9898. Let us know where you are. A little bit of a roll call, and we'll shout it out here on The Shift. All right, um, 2001, I was in Calgary, 26. Ryan was 6, and in... Ontario? Calgary. Where were you then? Uh, nope, still in Calgary. All right. John O'Chung, 2001. Where were you? I was in Burnaby, Burnaby, BC. Mm. He was two years old. He already owned seven apartment buildings, that guy. Remarkable. 877-399-9898. Uh, Where were you? How old were you? Let us know here on The Shift. Flashback Friday. Very exciting for Ryan to talk about this. What's the biggest movie of 2001? Well, there were lots of good ones. There was Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and A Knight's Tale. Now, speaking of knights, this film has knights, dragons, and a talking donkey. One name spells action. You're not exactly what I expected. One name spells adventure. How about here? Before this is over, I'm going to need a whole lot of serious therapy. One name. Don't look down. I'm looking down. Spells romance. Uh, it's no way to behave in front of a princess. Uh, Ooh, ah, she's as nasty as you are. Come on! There's an arrow in your butt! Oh. Oh. And that name is... Shrek. Shrek? Thank you very much. I'm here till Thursday. Ah, uh, Shrek. One of the best movies of all time, hands down, I would say. Uh, here's something you probably didn't know. Chris Farley was cast as the voice for the title character, recording most of the required dialogue, but then died in 1997 before his work in the film was finished. Mike Myers was hired to replace him and gave Shrek his Scottish accent, which Chris Farley could have done. Clearly, the film grossed over $491 million worldwide, becoming the fourth highest grossing film of 2001. Apple rolled out a product of that completely changed music in 2000. Oh, no, that's a different story. I'm going to get to that in a second. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to, I would love to hear in today with today's AI with Chris Farley, the work he did on Shrek and re-release it with Chris Farley as Shrek. Uh, we don't need it. Last year, people found the tapes and the anim and the original animations. So really? uh, on Sunday on the show, I'll grab them. I'll show you. I can play you what Chris Farley's Shrek sounded like. 
Hmm. I would like to see the whole movie done like that, though. They can do it with AI today. All the lines that yeah. weren't done. I will say it's not as good as no. Uh, but the Scott the Scottish accent really does add a, another layer. Chris Farley's is well, he's just Chris Farley. It was a different tone, different look. They changed a lot after Chris died, and it was I think the right direction for the movie because originally it was going to be motion capture, but then they swept swapped to the 3D animation that we all love mm-hmm. in that movie. It's great. Love it. Okay, so 2001 really changed the way we listen to music. Today, you can listen to The Shift Podcast on your Apple Music, your Spotify, and so much more. Well, that all began back in 2001 when Apple rolled out this new product that changed how we listen to music. Most of them throttle the encoding speed, so you're sitting there waiting longer than you have to. And all of them throttle the CD burning speed to 2x. Now, why do they do this? They do this so that you give them more money to buy a pro version that takes away these restrictions usually about $30. Well, we're gonna change all this today with something we call iTunes. As I mentioned, we're late to this party and we're about to do a leapfrog. And a leapfrog it was. Although most people didn't realize that that old way that he was talking about with getting MP3s and burning CDs, you actually had the music on your machine. And the new way was if you stopped paying, you lose it all. That was sort of, didn't people didn't anticipate that part when they were investing in their iTunes library back in the day, song by song. And then fast forward to today's world where you subscribe to the whole world library and you have access to everything in one shot. So everyone who spent all that money on the MP3s and those subscriptions back then for not, and yet you have to pay again in the future. So a leapfrog, it absolutely was, but at the same time, it sort of backfired for a lot of people that were very, very upset that they didn't have it. And there was, I know that there was a couple of people, there was an era with the copyright where you would rip in your CD into your iTunes but it wouldn't let you listen to it. You still had to pay for the songs because it would put them there, but you still had to say, show them that you paid for it, even though you could have bought the CD at a garage sale or something like that. It was pretty wild. Portable music grew in popularity after Apple released its iTunes media library on June 9th and the iPod came October 2023. <laughs> if you're watching TV in 2001, here's a good chance that you are probably watching this show too. Friday, turn off the lights and unplug the phone. Television's biggest secret is about to be revealed. Who will be the ultimate survivor? The answer is so top secret. You'll find out only hours after the castaways. One by one, they were eliminated. Now it's down to three. Who'll be the million-dollar winner? Tina Colby. Then relive the adventure when the castaways are reunited for the first time. Survivor, the two-hour finale, followed by the reunion, 8.30 Friday on 9. That was a big deal. Everybody was coming together, having parties, watching shows. Survivor has won 63 Emmy Awards, 44 seasons, 650 episodes, and it has a new season coming later this year. So pretty fascinating. All right, 2001, Ryan, you were very excited about um, about the song we played last hour here on The Shift, Kylie Minogue, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Is there anything else that comes from 2001 musically that gets you... It's kind of strange. It's a strange year for music. It's like a weird mm. kind of crossover uh, year for me. Oh, there's a lot of good ones. Little L by Jamiroquai. Oh, good one. Is fantastic. 
but I would argue that one of the greatest albums ever made and the greatest electronic dance album ever made came out in 2001, and that's Discovery by Daft Punk. Front to back, Uh, there is not a single song on that album that I skip. It is one of the best songs Mm -hmm. to just listen to, to dance to, to party to, whatever. It's perfect. Your Body's in Wonderland, John Mayer. Oh, uh, the that happened. Starting up, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it really started this. That, that he created this quite era of that folky thing that was going on. Yep. Um, Janet Jackson was still making music back then. Um, this is before Beyonce, Destiny's Child, right? So this was a big deal. Rock and roll was starting to change too back then when you had the Strokes. Rock and roll really started to change, 2001 to 2003. Um, Ryan's favorite song, Because I Got High, The Afro Man, came out. <laughs> yeah, my favorite song. Right? Uh, love it. Um, Ryan thinks of Fire it. Festival when he hears Ja Rule. I By do. the way, that guy from the Fire Festival made music, too, in case you're wondering. Jennifer Lopez was also making music back then. This is uh, this is uh, she when she was making music and then the acting and all the other things that came. We got really hippy dippy with Enya, right? <laughs> this song was two thousand one. Yeah. Uh, this one's become a bit of a meme. It's pretty funny. At least yeah. it was a while ago. Yeah. And it was like used for grad and weddings and all kinds of strange, strange. things, right? Strange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gorillas came out. Matchbox 20 was big at the time. Um, we also had Eminem D12, Purple Pills. That came out at that time, if you want to throw back into the hip-hop. Uh, Britney Spears was making music. Jerry Hollowell from the Spice Girls was making music as well. It's just, it was a strange time. Faithless in the world of dance was super fantastic. God is a DJ. Um, Genuine was started making more music. One of the best, I think, hip hop songs on the radio back then uh, was the group 112. They had Peaches and Cream. If you are of the age of probably about 50, I. Uh, Pretty sure that you uh, party to that one. That would be one of the ones that Ryan's parents would have uh, cut a rug with on my dance floor back in the day. Huh? This I song? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine my parents dancing to this your song dad? at all. Oh, he'd cut it up to this. Mm. Next time I see your dad, I'm going uh, to throw this on and I bet you he dances. Okay. All right. And we got Canadian too. Sum 41 was making music then. So there you go. Love it. Ooh. Daniel Benningfield was also making music. So very cool. Now, we're going to finish this uh, particular little throwback to 2001. Acknowledge uh, Malcolm in Etobicoke was 47 in 2001. We also have um, 11 in Burnaby. I was listening to Matchbox 20 back then. Um, what else we got here? Come on, scroll for me. I got married on the 22nd day of September. Um, Body is in Wonderland. Love that song. All this from 2001. Very cool stuff. And because of Ryan's love affair for driving in the songs in his mom's minivan, there's a couple of train songs we could throw in there, but I feel like we should just end it this way. Seems appropriate. With a little bit of Lifehouse. Flashback Friday, 2001. Here it's The Shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. 
is the shift podcast are you are you are you okay 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 are you okay with 877-399-9898 is our phone number where you can share your thoughts on these uh, stories that make you ponder are you okay with Cage matches. Ooh, that's like a throwback to the 80s WW wrestling, whatever. Oh, they still happen, man. I had a. Oh, yeah, they still happen. One of my favorite. We should ask Stebbing about this, by the way. He loves wrestling. Oh, I know he does. And Mm -hmm. so do I. I love wrestling. Do you? This is a surprise. I never really talked about this. this. I watched WWE probably from age 10 to 16, 17. I really really enjoyed it because it's all theatrics right it's just watching a entertaining dramatic show with punching and kicking and you know it's <laughs> fake but it's not it doesn't feel fake when you're watching it because you're watching like this you know just this entertainment and one of the greatest moments ever in uh in a cage match is i can't remember i think it was kurt angle and undertaker were on top of a cage <laughs> and uh undertaker's doing his special move the tombstone pile driver and he lifts Ooh. him up to do the move and drop him on the cage except the roof of the cage broke which was not planned and they plummeted all the way down they're on top of the cage they plummet all the way down to the ring kurt angle lands on his head and he's lying there and undertaker's not sure if he just killed him by accident and then he kind of just gives this little wave he's like i'm okay i'm okay they pin the match they they're they're performers man it's a blast to watch. And I kind of, anytime I talk about it, it makes me want to. <laughs> yeah, it's, turn well, it's on. soap opera with incredible athleticism and some yes. terrible drama. Um, really cool. I, I saw Bret Hart last night, actually, now that you say that. So, where? Uh, at, a, at an event. Cool. So, yeah. Um, 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 he looks good, actually. He looks really good. Um, okay, well, I, it's are you okay with and cage matches? Apparently, Brian is way more excited than I thought it would be. Yeah, surprise. They can be fun. They can be intense. I don't know how they get. They don't get hurt. That's incredible. Um, but as this seems like a very Ryan O'Donnell method throw, I see. I think I'm connecting the dots here now. Yep. Because I didn't know Spider Man was also a cage match thing. Hey, listen. It's some kind of mistake. I didn't sign up for cage match. Hey, unlock the thing. Take the chain off! Hey, Freak Joe! You're going nowhere! I got you for three minutes! Three minutes of play time! Macho Man Randy Savage. That's my generation of oh, wrestling. Dear. I lo- I didn't get to watch him wrestle, but everybody knows the Macho Man. He was so good. All right, so Macho Man versus Spider Man would be a great cage match. 
I think, but this one might even be better. Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg have agreed to a cage match, they say. It must be real because there's T-shirts. Mark tweeted last Tuesday night that he'd be up for a cage match uh, with Zuckerberg. Perhaps not wanting to meet Musk on the Twitter home field, Zuckerberg hit back on the meta-owned Instagram. Send me a location, he wrote, overlaid on a screenshot of Musk's challenge in an Instagram story. Musk also refused to leave familiar waters and tweeted, Vegas Octagon. They're battling it out from their prospective social networks, you see. Where the ultimate fighting championship UFC hosts matches in response to a news story about the two of them. I have this great move that I call the walrus, where I just lie on top of my opponent and do nothing. He added in a, added in a follow-up tweet. It remains to be seen if the two men are actually serious about fighting each other, and a spokesperson for Meta has said that the story speaks for itself. So who would win between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg? I would say Elon Musk all day. Um, I just feel like that's a thing. Musk is apparently much taller than Zuckerberg, reportedly standing about six foot one and heavier. Mark Zuckerberg is five foot seven. The Meta CEO is 12 years younger and recently won a gold and silver medal at his first jiu-jitsu competition. Uh, sports journalist Nick Pete told the BBC that Zuckerberg only has been training in the Brazilian martial arts style for about 18 months, but money's still on Zuckerberg to win if the fight ever materializes. Maybe that fight could be a lot closer if they try something out of Rocky. Come on, Dad, get up! Get up! You have to fight! All right, come on, let's play ball! Get up, Rock! Get up, you bum! Get up, Randy! Fight! Fight for me! Randy! 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 Hey, Bat Dad! I didn't hear no bell. I would be. What's that from, Rye? That's South Park. It's it's fantastic. Oh. It's one of the most iconic Randy Marsh moments on that show. I would pay Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg to say, "I didn't hear no bell." I'd pay. Them. <laughs> they don't need my okay. money, but they don't I'd need your money. Love to see that happen. Competition between Meta and Twitter has been heating up since product photos leaked of Meta's forthcoming Twitter competitor, an app rumored to be called Threads is internally called Project 92. Should not be a surprise because when Twitter was purchased by Musk, so much changed so quickly. There was all kinds of users that left and it would make sense that there would be something else to tie easy access into Facebook and Instagram and all the bits and pieces. They're so blended together now. They all kind of do the same thing. Yeah. Right? I'm not sure if I... Well, the I feel like the only reason Meta is trying to make... A Twitter competitor is because Twitter has changed in for the worse since Elon took over. Yeah. And there is a space for a more positive atmosphere. The issue is that Facebook doesn't really carry a lot of positive baggage with it. So I don't think they're going to really accomplish much here. I don't see yeah. it working. Uh, the opportunity the must present itself somewhere in the research that says that there was vulnerability there with Twitter. So we shall see. Facebook just uh, pulled the said they're pulling the pin on the the news stories in Canada. So, which could affect us because we like to share. You know, if we do a news article and we like to share it on our Facebook group, we might not be able to do that anymore. So it those decisions will directly affect the way that we go about uh, the shift head Facebook group. So worth noting. 
Cheer for Elon. I just feel like Elon could lie on him and squish him and squeeze the air out of him. You but know, like Mark Zuckerberg is a sneaky guy. He's a little he's, snake. He could be slippery, you know? but what I think Elon person? is Elon is is um is heavy. <laughs> he's thick. He could sit on him. You know, it's true. But I don't hey, feel like he... there's a lot of athleticism with Elon. I feel like way more athleticism with Mark Zuckerberg. But mm-hmm. if Elon falls on him, you know, it's a classic matchup. I mean, for example, when Macho Man Randy Savage fought Spider Man, Spider Man mm. won. Be, not because Classic. he's bigger than Macho Man Randy Savage, because he's more agile and he's also a superhero. But you know, you get my point. You do understand that two of these are real people, and two of these are not people. Right? Well, well that's that happened in the movie, and Macho Man Randy Savage is actually in the movie. And yes, that's a choreographed fight. But I mean, like, it just in this for the example, let's pretend that we're in a better world where there is a Spider Man, and Macho Man's it, Randy Savage is still alive. Nice, okay. it's a nice feeling. In that okay. scenario, it could go either way. Are you okay with... I'm just moving on from Ryan's imaginary world here. Um, confessions. Oh, I like Ryan's confessions. Ryan does late night confessions here on the shift from oh time to time. God, we haven't done those in ages. I actually... Hey. I'm going to have to make a new one. I transferred Why? all of my old fancy smancy uh sound effects over to the my new work laptop but there were a couple that i completely forgot about and uh, one of them is the late night confessions i mean it's, oh, it's somewhere in the vault i'm sure I got it here. no you don't yeah I do. Do you actually do you um actually no. let's get in with a story here first uh confessions mm-hmm. if you grew up anywhere near a catholic family you know that you know a big part of your upbringing was shame and guilt Yep. and uh, egg salad sandwiches, mm-hmm. and you don't read the Bible, you read the bulletin. That's just the way it goes. Also, you feel better when you go to confession. Clears it all up. A restaurant owner in the States is now in some serious uh, owner trouble for trying to bring church into the kitchen. A restaurant in Sacramento, California, is being accused of an unholy act, hiring a fake priest to get confessions from workers. The Department of Labor says the restaurant, Taqueria Garibaldi, used someone they identified as a priest to see if employees were showing up late or leaving early. The owners were also accused of giving managers money from employee tip pools. The local diocese denies a priest has ever worked for that restaurant. The owners have been ordered to pay employees $140,000 in back wages and damages. Uh, okay. That is crazy. So yeah, nothing. I don't know how that works, but, um, so it would basically be like, we're having a show right now. And let's say Mm -hmm. there are one too many typos in the script and you've, you've Mm -hmm. cracked, you've had it up to here. Instead Mm -hmm. of you coming to me being like, Ryan, this is what I need you to do. You would hire someone who's not a priest, but pretends to be a priest to get me to confess my sins to them, to put the religious guilt on top of it. Okay. Seems like a lot of work. It seems like a lot of work and it's so the opposite of being a nice religious person. It's so unbelievably bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, uh, you know, if that works for you in your life, good for you. Love it. Um, and uh, I just don't think that that should be a tactic for you to be honest at work. You know? No, no. Uh, Seven News brought us that story. Investigators also found that the restaurant denied employees overtime pay, uh, which doesn't seem very 
churchy, godly, moral. Mm-hmm. And some employees faced adverse immigration consequences for cooperating with the investigators in this whole story anyway. Also, um, I think it's a little hypocritical. You know, by the way, it's we're so going to use, the, we're gonna use a, a little bit of uh, a little God pressure. And by the way, uh, we decide what we want to do. Crazy. They threatened to call immigration police if they didn't follow the rules at the same time. So, yeah, here you go. The rules of the restaurant that is. Okay, fascinating right there. I'm still working on trying to dig up the uh, Ryan's sexy late night confessions voice because I got late night confessions. It's it's somewhere in the vault. I'm working on it. Maybe it's okay. I I can make a new one. Can you? I Um, think so. Yeah. Let me check this. Well, I've got that AI thing that'll change my voice, so I can just use artificial intelligence to make my voice sound sexy. Mm-hmm, which will help mm-hmm, as we try to mm-hmm. get people to confess their late night confessions. We do. We like that. We should plan that for next week. I think. Hey, if you feeling a little heavy in your heart, long time. Yeah, I don't know. Feel a little heavy on your heart. We can we can get in on that. And and uh, mm-hmm. oh oh look what I found. Do you have a late night confession? Call eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. If you've got a secret, we can keep it. Unless, of course, though, you uh, you don't do what we say, then we will get you kicked out of the country. Mm-hmm. Just like the restaurant. Are you okay with Ryan's sexy voice? Because that was Ryan's sexy voice right there. That was weird. That's not my real sexy voice. My no, real sexy told... voice is, is only heard by one person. And, and I know. nobody is listening that can hear the voice. So it's reserved, Trucker Dan so... was offended by your sexy voice because he, he couldn't hear it. It wasn't loud. You said you weren't sharing it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, if you're one of the lucky people that get to hear the real one, <laughs> you know. Really? Yeah. Mm. Lucky's not the word I would choose, but good for you. Mm-hmm. You know, keep it sexy, big guy. There... Are you okay with very bad ideas? Mm. Is anybody? Well, it's, it's someone like else. One of the, it's, uh, I, I like to use this saying. Uh, earlier today, for example, I was playing some World of Tanks with some friends online, and I said to them, I have a really bad idea. And then I drove my tank in a direction and was immediately obliterated. Uh, so that's an example of like a funny bad idea that still, you know, we laugh about. Um, but uh, I think I'm at that age now where the I can see, I can recognize when if I'm going to do something, this is going to be just perpetually stupid. Um, even like a driving, like on an e-scooter. Oh, there's a shortcut through some gravel. It would be a really bad idea for me to take an e-scooter on gravel. That kind of stuff. Yeah, but see, the scope of what is a bad idea changes as you get older. Yes, because correct. when you're 18 or 19, you're going to the bar. A bad idea usually consists of a couple of people in a shopping cart and a hill. Mm-hmm. As you get older, um, you are like, that's irresponsible of me to ride a scooter and gravel. And then you get older and you're like, I'm going to stay up to 945 tonight. And that becomes your bad idea. So it really does, you know, like, I'm not going to drink water for three days. I'm a rebel. <laughs> right? Uh, I'd like so. to delay the 9 p.m. bedtime as long as I possibly can. Oh, that's great. I can't wait to go to bed at 9 o'clock. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> so good. Anyway, that's a terrible example. This might be a very bad idea here on The Shift. Louisiana State University fans broke a record in an unusual college World Series tradition by ordering and downing more than 21,000 jello shots. College students, 21,000 jello shots. What could possibly go wrong? Right there in LSU colors. 
brings the team's total 21,000 and counting for the annual Jello Shot Challenge at Rocco's Pizza. Ole Miss had almost 19,000 Jello Shots last year through the entire series. That was the record. LSU smashed it this evening with the help of Raising Cane's founder, Todd Graves, who bought $30,000 worth. You bought a bunch of shots. How many did you buy? Well, 6,000. 6,000 shots. And actually, that breaks the world record in shots. So last one, Merle Haggard bought six, almost 6,000, 5,995 shots at Billy Bob's years ago. We just broke the world record today. And he goes to charity. That's amazing. <laughs> Billy Bob's. <laughs> I can't be the only one uh, that is going. Of course it was called Billy Bob's. It's Especially if you're from Red Deer. There was a Billy Bob's in Red Deer. It was that fantastic. Yeah. Uh, WAFB8 News right there. It depends on how many people had 21,000 jello shots. I mean, if mm. it was 10,500 people that had 21,000 jello shots, eh, so be it. There's not a lot of real liquor there. Kevin Colgett, owner of Rocco's Pizza and Cantina in Omaha, said he started making jello shots in school colors during the 2016 College World Series, and the jello shot challenge has since become an annual tradition for fans to show support for their favorite schools. The number of shots ordered by LSU fans had reached 22,462 early Tuesday afternoon. I have questions. Go ahead. How long does it take to make 22,000 jello shots? Typically, they have to be refrigerated to get all yep. jello-y. So then they have to be on a counter somewhere stored. Like, that is a big fridge. That's a lot of stuff. And that's a lot of, you know, like those little white caps on there, those are hard to put on. That mm -hmm. would take time. So, uh, white caps, are you talking about like the lids on the shot glasses? Yeah, well, they would usually, because a jello shot usually has, it has to have a lid on it. It's usually a plastic cup. Oh, these cup, didn't have a right? lid on them. These did no. not have a lid on them. No, no, so you it don't was, spill them. I'm pretty sure what they did was they got an industrial. Well, it's a pizza shop. Maybe they took the thing they make the dough in and Maybe. filled it to the brim with Jello and and vodka, and then just uh, you know tossed it and filled it up as best as they could, and waited for the guy from Billy Bob's to buy six thousand of them. Um, I'm curious of though of if you buy six thousand, how many actually get consumed? Because sure, the money is going to charity. Who cares? But, um. Yeah, there's frat houses that could use them, clearly. How, but how big is your counter? Yeah, where are you going to put them all the, in the fridge? Like the, I would say the, the max one fridge could hold would be maybe like 200, maybe, mm -hmm. at the most. In the free, you can't put them in the freezer. That's crazy. Um, it's not like you can do it like Yucca Flux either. So, you're a fan of the Yucca Flux, are you? Uh, I don't know what that is. Maybe I that is tell me usually a giant, like uh, you take like a watermelon, you fill it full of rum, oh, or you take like a giant um, garbage can and fill it full <laughs> of fruit and liquor. Yeah. And then you just kind of scoop it in and you eat the fruit. So it's, uh, you know, you used to go to school, Ryan, you used to get those little fruit cups. Your mom would put in the thing, little fruit cup. Love those. Yeah. The dole cups. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's that liquor. In a garbage can size. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I don't care what kind of receptacle I'm drinking. It's like bringing your own cup day to 7-Eleven. Well, you know, however you get there, you get there. And also, once you finish it, the garbage can is already waiting for you. It's, it's good. perfect. Return to the earth.
We are going to have a Yucca Flux night here on The Shift. Why not? Just for young Ryan. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 